0: Want to welcome all of you once again to Easton Life Church. Many new faces, many faces that we haven't seen in a long time. It's so great to see you all again and to join together with you. And if you're not familiar with who we are and what we do, we are simply a body of believers in Jesus Christ who come together in order to worship and praise his name because we've been made new in Jesus Christ. Amen? This is who we are. We believe that we are here to worship the Lord, and we believe in the sufficiency of His Word. We believe that His Word is all we need to teach us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So we're going to open up His Word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're in a series called Love Letters. The series is called Love Letters because it is written by the Apostle John. He called himself the Apostle who Jesus loved. He wrote this letter in his old age on an island. He had actually been exiled to an island called Patmos in his old age. He had been sent there because of his faith. He was a radical Christian. He was a radical follower of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus had cost him. It had cost him dearly. Church, this morning, we better prepare ourselves for the possibility that within our lifetimes it may become a costly thing to be a Christian. In the world we live in, becoming a Christian may one day cost us something, but church, it's worth it. Amen? There's nothing we would trade for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ on our lives. So John was on this island. He was alone on this island. But he was visited by an angel from heaven. And this angel gave him a vision. And in this vision, John was taken up to heaven. And he was actually able to speak with Jesus Christ himself in heaven. And Jesus told him in these letters from Revelation chapters 2 and 3... There were seven churches in the area of what we now today call Asia Minor. And he told John to write these letters down. Jesus gave him the words. And he said, write these down and deliver these to the messengers. Or the Bible says the angel, which just means messenger. To the messenger of these churches. And these letters were going to be delivered to these churches. And they were going to be read out loud in church services. Just like what we're going to do today. So we've gone through several of these. And in many of these letters... What you'll find, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, is that there are very often rebukes from Jesus or criticisms from Jesus about these churches. The church in Ephesus, we find, was a church that had correct doctrine. They believed the right things. They thought the right things, but they didn't have love there were churches that had plenty of love and had great worship and seemed to be doing good on the outside but they had actually allowed sin to enter in to the midst and in fact one church had actually began promoting sin from the pastorate from the stage from the pulpit this had actually become part of what they did and Jesus was placing judgment on these churches and telling them that you need to repent you need to change your ways otherwise the church is going to be judged just because we're here today I once heard an old preacher say this, I believe it was Adrian Rogers, he said, hey, being in church doesn't make you a Christian, just like being in a garage doesn't make you a car. It's great that you're here today, and we are so glad that you're here, and I understand that if you're not like a church person, so to speak, sometimes the decision to just even wake up and come to church is difficult, because you can come in and you may feel like you don't belong, or you may feel judged, or you may feel condemned, and understand this morning, We gathered here today are just happy that you're all here. We don't judge and we don't condemn because we have come from the exact same place that maybe you're coming from. And we found Christ. Christ found us and he has saved us and he's changed us and transformed us. But the truth is, coming to church really isn't even half the battle because coming to a building doesn't change you. Coming to Jesus Christ is truly what changes you from the inside. And you see, just because we come to church on Sunday morning doesn't mean that we're living a life that is pleasing to God. It doesn't mean that we are within the will of God. Coming to church is a great start. But if all you do is come to church and you don't make a real connection with Jesus Christ and you don't allow Him to come into your life and transform you and to save you from your sin, the truth is you've missed the big point. Amen? Many of these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 had missed the big point. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they had a lot of problems. But the church we're going to read about today in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7, this was a church in a small town called Philadelphia. It's where Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the United States gets its name. This small town called Philadelphia had a small church, but this church was, two of, was one of two of the seven churches that did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. This was a church that by all matter of understanding was actually doing things right by God's will. And this is good news for us today, church, because the church in Philadelphia is just like us today. They were not a perfect church. Amen? We know they weren't a perfect church because they were filled with people. And people, even Christian people, still have problems, don't we? We still got struggles. We still got difficulties. We still have stress. This probably wasn't a celestial heavenly angel. This was just a messenger. This was a person who was going to be delivering this letter to the church at Philadelphia. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Church, who was the author of this letter to this church this morning? It was Jesus Christ. It wasn't John. It wasn't the apostle John. Now you may say, wait a minute. Jesus didn't write this letter with his hands. It was the Apostle John who wrote this letter. He's the one who put pen to paper, and perhaps you've heard it this way. Perhaps you've heard the argument, or maybe this morning you believe the argument, that you can't trust that the Bible is true, and you can't trust that the Bible is the Word of God because it was written by imperfect men. Anybody ever heard this argument before? This was one of those university... Professor arguments I heard back in 2004 when I was in my first year of college. They said, You can't trust the Bible. It's a book written by men just like any other book. Well, the problem with that argument is that the writers of the Bible, there's over 40 of them, the writers of the Bible claim that they were being influenced and inspired directly by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. So now when we understand that, we have to look at the text of the book and ask ourselves, is this true? Is it verifiable? Does it match up with history? Does it match up with itself? And church, that Bible that you perhaps hold in your hand this morning, let me share something about that. That is not merely a book written by mere men. That is a collection of 66 books written by almost 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And they all come from different perspectives and they're all written by many different people. But the truth is, if you'll read it for yourself, what you will find is that every word of it is true, It matches up perfectly with itself. It matches up better than any other record of history that we have in the world. And if you're honest with yourself, that collection of 66 books that we call the Holy Bible is the best thing we have to help us understand what God wants us to know. We call that this morning the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. It is enough to tell us what we need to know. You may say, well, listen, I'm a very spiritual person and I pray and I sort of have my own connection with God and God tells me what I need to know the scripture tells us that it's his word that tells us what we need to know we don't go to God in secret on our own hoping to get some special revelation we need simply to open his book And to read it and to understand what God wants us to hear. And Jesus reminds us in verse 7 that this letter written to this little church in Philadelphia in Asia Minor was written not by the Apostle John, but by the Holy and True One. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 that God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The word holy means that he's different, he's unique. We often think about God in terms of ourselves we think of God as being like us, and thinking like us, and feeling like us, and acting like us, and reasoning like us, but Isaiah 55 says that he, know, he doesn't think or reason like we do. It says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You see, God is not simply a perfect version of us, but luckily for us that in his holiness and in his perfection, he sent his son Jesus to be the perfect version of humanity so that we can relate to God. And it was his son, Jesus Christ, who God sent to this earth in the form of sinful flesh, yet he had no sin. The Bible says that his son, Jesus, was tempted as a man, just like every other man is, but he did not sin. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the will of God. And in John chapter 14, his son, Jesus Christ, said himself, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus declared himself to be the only truth. You say, well, I I believe people need to see and accept my truth. See, my truth is something that our culture pushes today. I can have my truth. You can have your truth. And what I say is true for me and what you say may contradict it. But if it's true for you, then we can just agree to have our own truths and we'll just live with that. But the truth is, that truth is an objective standard that was brought to life in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. And if we are not living as Jesus lived, we're not living the truth, regardless of how I feel. So Jesus said that he was the truth. He said that he is the Holy One, and he is the one who writes this letter to this church today. If Jesus Christ himself were to write a letter to Eastland Life Church, what would it say? What would he say about our church this morning? What would he say about our worship? What would he say about the attitude that we bring to the throne? What would he say about our prayer life what would he say about our preaching is it true or does it just make us feel good see the truth is if we want God's blessing we got to get God's blessing his way and we get God's blessing his way when we forget about my truth and align ourselves with his truth in Jesus Christ he was the author of this letter and he describes himself here is having the key of David. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, that may not make a lot of sense, but King David was the most powerful king in Israel's history. In the Old Testament, in the earlier part of your Bible, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were considered to be uniquely the people of God, the people that God had chosen in that time and place. And King David was their mightiest king, and the people of Israel were constantly looking for a king who would replicate the kingdom like David did. You see, at the moment that this book in Revelation was written, the Jewish people, they had been scattered, they had lost their land, they had lost their kingdom, their temple had been destroyed, and they were searching for a king. But the truth is, their king had already come as Jesus Christ, but they had missed him. Because to them, Jesus didn't look like King David. King David was a military leader. King David was full of charisma. King David was powerful and mighty and had a throne and had a temple. And yet here was Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And he was a lowly man from a lonely community called Bethlehem. He came from a poor family and he had only about 12 followers and their family and friends that followed him. And he ended up being crucified at the young age of 33 years old. And this did not look like a king to them. This didn't look like King David, who they were looking for. But when he arose from the dead three days later, their minds were changed. Because when somebody claims to be God, and then they arise from the dead, that's a person you should listen to. Amen? This is what Jesus had done. And now he is writing this letter to this little church, and he says, listen, I'm the true one, I'm the holy one, I'm the one who holds the key of David, basically the kingdom that you're looking for, I'm the one who has the keys to it. And he says, what he opens, nobody can shut, and what he shuts, nobody can open. I think there's two meanings here I want to talk to you about this morning. Number one, Jesus Christ is the one who decides who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Amen? You see, we like to fashion it this way. We like to fashion it this way. Well, I get to decide my fate. I get to decide what I do with my life. Nobody gets to be my boss. Nobody gets to call the shots in my life. Nobody gets to decide my future. My destiny is in my hands. I control that. But the truth is, if we understand what the Word says, Jesus Christ is the one who holds the keys to eternity. You see, you may make choice after choice in this life and feel like you have control, but those of us who know the truth about God and the truth about ourselves have come to understand that I am no good boss in my life. I am a terrible manager of my own affairs. What I need to do and what God calls us to do is align ourselves with him because he's the one who has the keys. If you feel like your life's not moving, you feel stuck, you feel like you're not going anywhere, perhaps you need to get out of the driver's seat and let Jesus drive. Amen? He's the one with the keys. And it says here that what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, I wish I had more time this morning to preach about this because this is very, very interesting. Because I want us to think about in our life how often are we trapped in the present by something that happened in the past? You know what I'm talking about? How often are we stuck in the present because of a door that closed in the past? Maybe you went through a divorce or a loss or you had a wayward child or something happened to you financially. Maybe there was an addiction problem that started at a young age or perhaps your life went awry later in life and you are still stuck because of decisions that you or somebody else made years ago. A door shut and you're still standing there trying to pull that door open. You're saying, Pastor, I would love for God to really take hold of my life and do something with me, but because of what happened or because of what I did years ago, I just can't seem to get the door open again. Can I submit to you this morning that perhaps the doors that God has closed in our lives, he's closed for a reason. Perhaps God has closed those doors because he doesn't intend for you to walk through them. And the very doors that we think, man, if I could just get this thing in the past right, if I could just fix this, then my future would be right. Perhaps we need to stop trying to reopen the closed doors and start walking through the ones that Jesus has already opened for us. We spend so much time tugging on locked doors in our life, going, God, just open it. Please open God, just open that door. And God will be patient and just say, no, you can pull on it all you want, but I've shut that one for a reason. There's an open door in front of you that you need to walk through. How many people do you know that have all the gifting? And the ability, and you think, man, man, if Joey or Mac or Miss Robin, if they could just get it right and get it figured out, man, they've got so much gifting God could use them in such mighty ways, but it drives you crazy because you don't see them doing anything. And you think, man, why is it they won't step into their calling? Church, I believe many of us are so afraid to let go of control of our lives and let God lead us that very often the answer is an open door right in front of us and we're just scared to walk through it. God has put that path in front of us, and we just say, nope, I'm still wanting to open this door over here because this is what I know, this is all I know, and this is what I think I can control. Church, this morning, let the Spirit lead you. Whatever doors he's closed, walk away and trust his plan. Time after time, my wife and I, we have tried to walk away from the open door, haven't we? Time after time, we've tugged on that locked door saying, God, I just really want a career. God, I just really want to move somewhere else. God, I just really want to do this thing my way. And the more we try to throw our shoulder into that door, the more we beat ourselves up. And you know when we've really seen some miracles happen is when we've said, okay, God, I hear you. You've opened this door. I'm going to walk through it. And we walk through it and we go, why did we hesitate? This is clearly what God wanted to do. And when you're in God's will, church, when you walk through the doors that he has opened, what you find is that the stress and the anxiety and the worry about those closed doors, that sort of melts away. And we experience what the Bible calls the newness of life or the abundant life that Jesus came to give to you. I don't know who I'm preaching to this morning, but if you're hearing me this morning, don't be afraid to walk through that door that God's opened for you. And don't be afraid to walk away from the one that he has shut there's no life there verse 8 Jesus said I know your deeds it's a scary thought I know your deeds the holy one the true one I know what you do I know what you've done and I know what you're thinking Jesus knows and yet he says see I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength and you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Here we see what it is that made this church unique. This church at Philadelphia was a model church for us. They received no rebuke from Jesus. This would be like getting a letter from Jesus that says, Dear Eastland Life Church, you may not be big but you're powerful. You may not be mighty But you're strong. And in your midst, because of your faithfulness and because of your obedience and because of your consistency, I've opened a door in your church that nobody can shut. This is a picture of the idea that when people would come into this church, Jesus was calling people to be saved. Pastor Brian said something last week. I want to encourage you. If you haven't heard last week's message, go to YouTube, search Eastland Life Church, and you'll find a message very recently on our page there that is called the dead and the dying this is a message pastor brian brought last week and it was brilliant and he used an analogy that was so perfect he said it this way he said that in a natural family when there is love between a husband and wife typically you end up with children right there's a multiplication factor my wife and i must really love each other because there's a bunch of jacksons running around don't even know where they're all at but they're here somewhere. There's a multiplication that happens. It's the natural order of things. Where there is life, there is multiplication. There is duplication. In the church, where there is a living wife married to the husband, which is Christ, the natural order of things is there will be multiplication. There will be growth. That's why we aren't content to simply wake up every morning and preach the word Take up an offering and pray and go home. We believe that if we are alive in Christ, we should be multiplying and we should be growing. That's one of the reasons that when you came this morning, as the worship was already going and more and more people began to fill the seats, it filled our hearts with joy because we're like, man, God's bringing us people. Look at what God is doing. There's an open door that no one can shut. In fact, Bernie, literally the door was open and you were trying to shut it and people kept walking in. That's good. That's a good thing in the church. God had opened that door, and even though they had little strength, this doesn't mean that they were weak spiritually. What this means is that this church in Philadelphia, get this, this is so good, they weren't big, yet they were pleasing to God. Isn't that good news? You see, in America today, the little country church that many of us grew up in is dying. In fact, as a result of what happened in our culture in the year 2020, Barna Research Group now estimates that one in five small churches in America is now facing the real possibility of closing its doors because of financial troubles from what happened in 2020. One in five. And some of the other stats that we read are just as shocking. And yet, while these little churches die, we're seeing this outgrowth of what we might call megachurches. Churches that have seemingly infinite resources, infinite strength, limitless talent, unbelievable musicians, great preachers, wonderful children's ministries, unbelievably huge, magnificent facilities. These churches are growing while little churches like ours tend to be shrinking. And as a pastor and as an elder in a church like this, it can be easy to look around and to look at our town of metropolis and to look at our facilities and go you know what God we just don't have what a lot of these real big mega churches have we don't have all these resources we don't have much strength and we say you know what Levi what can we do what can we do without all the resources that these big churches have the good news Is that God said, Hey, you got little strength, like you don't have a lot of resources, but there's an open door that nobody's gonna shut. Like the church, the doors of this church are not gonna close because you have been obedient and you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. When Jesus Christ asked Peter, Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Peter, it's the Spirit that revealed this to you. And it's upon that testimony that I'm gonna build my church. And what did he say? said, so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We look at our culture today and go, oh my goodness, little churches are dying. What's going to happen to these churches and to these communities? I'll tell you what's going to happen. If we are obedient and if we are persistent and consistent and we're not afraid to deny Christ, the door will not shut. The door will not be shut. In fact, this church in Philadelphia, believe it or not, as small as it was, it lasted over 1,400 years this church lasted until the 14th century when the area was overrun by Muslims and that was the demise of this church but they lasted for over 1400 years from the first century to the 14th century you see Esam, what we need to hear today is that it is God's pattern to use small things to yield big results it's God's pattern to use small things like the church at Philadelphia or maybe the church at Eastland Life Church in Metropolis to yield big results Think about the stories we read of in our Bible. Think of King David. King David was small. He was the youngest of his brothers. He was a shepherd. And yet when there was a nine-foot-tall freak taunting the armies of God, and all of the mighty warriors were too afraid to fight him, here was little King David. He wasn't king yet. He was just David. He reached down, grabbed five stones, put him in a slingshot, and said, I'll kill that dude right now because he defies the armies of the living God. Who does this man think he is? And with five stones, this skinny little boy, pencil neck little David, kills this mighty giant. And he shows the world that God enjoys using little things to yield big results. When Jesus came to earth, and there was a crowd of 5,000 people and the disciples were panicking because they said, these people are hungry and we don't have any food to give them. And this is like a capital offense when you've got a church meeting and there's not enough fried chicken to go around. What are we going to do? And they thought, we've got to come up with some huge miracle. And yet Jesus didn't use the apostles. He didn't use the disciples. He didn't use the religious institutions. What he found was a little boy with two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread. And he fed 5,000 people with it. Jesus uses little things to yield big results. When Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples asked him, "All right Jesus, you're ar- you're risen from the dead now. Now the real stuff's about to happen. Now are you going to set up your kingdom?" He said, "No, you guys are going to set up the kingdom." He said in Matthew 28 that you 12 men and those with you are going to go into all the world and to teach people what I commanded and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus created his church on the back of 12 regular men. Twelve. And what you are a part of today is now the largest global movement in history, the Church of Jesus Christ. Started with 12 people in the Middle East They weren't educated, they weren't overly intelligent, but they were obedient and they were committed. Now, Eastland, let me ask you this morning, what is your expectation of God today? Are we assuming that because it's Metropolis, and because it's Eastland, and because it's 3rd Street, and because it's just Pastor Blake... And because it's just me here today, and maybe you brought your family, maybe you came alone, are you looking around, looking at the things you see with your eyes, looking at the little things, going, you know what? God's probably not going to do a lot with this. God's probably not going to accomplish big things. Might I submit to you that it is God's pattern to use small things to yield big results. You see, when we look at the problems that face our community today, an overwhelmed educational system, addiction, family dysfunction, financial difficulty, the lack of jobs. When we look at these things and then we look at our little church, we may say, man, this is overwhelming. How are we ever going to do this? I believe what Jesus sees is a plentiful harvest with not enough laborers. I believe what Jesus says today, if he was gonna write a letter to Eastland, I think he would say this. I think he would say, Eastland, you're not big. You don't have the resources. But if you're obedient and if you're consistent, you will see big results. You will see mighty things. You can see revival. You can see salvations. You can see life change. You can see people restored from addiction. You can see people saved from their sin. You can see families restored through the power of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I've not seen those things in my life come partner up with us and you'll see it and you'll see even more because all the things that I just mentioned are things that have happened within this body of believers you see I can't believe that God would just use a ragtag group of people like this that's exactly what God wants to use and he does it look at what 1 Corinthians says God does it for a reason. He says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He said God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see... If you go to some huge church with all these resources and all these resources net these huge results, you may say to yourself, man, these people really have it together. These are some smart people running this big organization. But the truth is, when God begins to do miracles in a little place like this, we've got no other answer than it has to be God. This must be God. How does God transform a family? It's got to be God. Church, we are here not because we've got it figured out, not because we've got all the resources we need, not that we've got the formula to fix your life and to fix my life. We're here because we believe that when we, although we are small and lowly, when we are obedient to what God's Word says and we are consistent and we will not bow down to the culture that demands we bow down, we believe God can do mighty things. We believe God can do mighty things. He's not looking for strength. You say, Pastor, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through right now. Take heart because he isn't looking for somebody strong. God isn't looking for somebody who's got it figured out and has all the answers. God isn't looking for somebody to quarterback his team. God is merely looking for somebody who's willing to be obedient and to be consistent. Are you willing to do what he tells you? Are you willing to walk through the door that he's opened in front of you? And are you willing to not quit when it gets hard, because it's gonna get hard? Are you willing to not quit when it gets hard? You say, you know what? I got a mess in my life, but I can be obedient. I can do what I'm told. God's word says it. If that's enough for you, and you say, I can do what God's word says, you're somebody that's ready to be used by God. And you say, you know what? I'm not going to quit when it gets hard. I'm not going to quit when it's no fun. I'm not going to quit when I get tired. I'm not going to slow down when I get busy. God can use you, and God will use you. Jesus said it over and over. You be faithful with a little, and he'll give you a lot. You say, man, I don't see God doing much in my life. Here's the question he would ask. Have you been faithful with what he has given you? So many of us spend so much time being frustrated by what we don't have that we aren't faithful with what we do have and then we wonder why God never blesses us with more. Perhaps he's waiting for us to be faithful with the door that He set in front of us. Maybe walk through the one you got and quit worrying about the one we don't, amen? This church was obedient and they were faithful and that's exactly what God was looking for. And he said in verse nine, he talks about the opposition they come up against because church, if you do what God wants you to do, maybe you've seen this in your own life, You begin to follow God, you're going to make some enemies. You begin to follow God, you're going to have some enemies crop up here and there. There's always a critic or two who's willing to share what's wrong with what you're doing. And this was happening to this church. It says in verse 9, I'll make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but they're liars, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now this sort of comes out of left field because this church seems to have it together. And yet it looks like that though they have it together, they're coming up against some opposition. And the opposition they were coming up against is not the type of opposition that we see today in southern Illinois. But what they were running up against were the people who were Jewish people by heritage, by descendancy, by nature. They were people descended from the tribes of Israel. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people seemed to be the people that God had chosen uniquely to be his people. And yet, when Jesus came onto the scene, it was the Jewish people that rejected Jesus. It was his very own people that denied Jesus as their king and as their Messiah. In fact, if you remember... Jesus came in and the Jews shouted Hosanna and they were excited because they believed that their King David had come to rescue them. And no more than seven days later, they were demanding that he be killed and crucified because he was a deceiver, he was a fraud. And as he hung on that cross, they had the Romans place a sign above his head, said the King of the Jews. They mocked him. This loser thinks he's a king, this ain't our king. And Jesus died. When he rose three days later, they had a problem. Because this king that they had denied was now reigning victorious over sin and death. And what had happened was this. As his influence began to spread and people began to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior in this time, the Jewish people doubled down on their failure and on their error. They doubled down and said, we are not going to worship Jesus as our Messiah. We don't believe the rumors that he's alive from the dead. Regardless of how many people say they saw him, we don't believe it's true, and we're going to persecute, and we're going to attack these churches that are following Jesus. And that's what was happening. Now listen to what Jesus said about them. This is interesting. Jesus could have easily just said this. He could have just said, hey, haters going to hate, all right? I don't think Jesus would have said it that way. But if it was 2021, maybe, or maybe 2017, perhaps, that's a little bit of a dated reference. He might have just said, listen, you're always going to have enemies, you're always going to have people who are against you, just ignore them. But he said something weird. He said, these people, they think they're following God, but they're actually following Satan and they don't even know it. He said, they're claiming to be Jews and they're not even Jews. Now the question is, what did he mean by that? If I introduce myself to you this morning and I said, hey Jerry, I'm Blake, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And you said, oh, I'm from Joppa. And I said, no, you're not. You claim to be, but you're not. You're not Japanese. No way. Don't believe it. That'd be a little bit offensive, especially coming from a Graves County boy like myself. But Jesus said, hey, these people claim to be Jews. They're not Jews. Now, the question is, were they actually not Jewish? Were they literally born into what they believed to be a Jewish family, but turns out they didn't actually have any Jewish heritage? Or is it that being a Jew didn't mean what they thought it meant? I'm going to submit to you that the latter is correct. These people were Jewish by their heritage. Their parents were Jews, their grandparents were Jews, and they had traced their lineage back, and they knew that they were Jewish, and man, they hung on to that. I'm a Jewish person. I'm one of God's people. How do you know you're one of God's people? Because I'm a Jew, and God's people are the Jews. Read your Old Testament. Read read the book of Genesis. Look at the promises made to our grandfather Abraham. I'm a Jew, and yet Jesus here says, no, you're not a Jew. Well, that's offensive to somebody who treasures their heritage. But look at what we learn in Romans chapter 2. Paul says this, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, Nor is circumcision, which was the physical sign of being a Jew. This is what was unique about the Jewish people. They practiced this. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. He said, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Church, we have to understand this morning God's people are not defined by their ethnicity, they're defined by their heart. And this is really important. This is important for us today. And we don't have a big Jewish population in metropolis that we contend with on this matter. But the truth is, some of us, and my dad's here today so I don't want to say too much, but some of us come from some families that are just a little bit dysfunctional, Amen. Some of you didn't have the greatest parents and grandparents to give you an example to live by. Some of you, when you introduce yourself, you're sort of afraid to tell people what your last name is because you know they're going to place you with your family and you're going to have to explain yourself. Oh, you're not so-and-so's son, are you? You're not so-and-so's grandson, are you? Yeah, I am, but I, you know, it's, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm different. I don't do what they do. You see, many of us, come from places of dysfunction and we think God could never use me because I'm a nobody. I'm a screw-up. I come from a family of screw-ups. The truth is, God is not looking at the outward. He's not looking at your strength and he's not looking at your heritage. And praise God, he's not looking at the Jewish nation today and saying, you know what, those are my people. Today, he looks at his church made up of regular people like us. The Bible calls us Gentiles. We're non-Jewish. He looks at regular people like us. He looks at Jewish people who have submitted their life to Jesus Christ and made the decision to follow him as their Lord and Savior. He takes basically anybody who will turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus Christ. He looks at them and says, that's my people right there. Say, I don't know if he wants me in the family. I'm pretty screwed up. No, you are exactly who he's looking for. No matter where you came from, who you are, you are able to be in the kingdom of God today because his people are defined by their heart, not their ethnicity. Let's keep going. And get ready to close. He finishes this letter. He finishes this letter by telling them what they have to look forward to. Can we move on to the next verse? He says in verse 10, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently. Patiently is an important word. Anybody struggle with patience? Man, how many times have you wanted to quit? How many times have you said, Krista? how many times have you and I said to each other, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can keep doing it. I don't know if I've said it yet today. Probably will for the end of the day. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I'm not going to quit today. We're going to endure patiently. He said, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. We don't know exactly what this means. If you believe, and I I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but if you believe that Revelation was written in the the 90s in AD 90 or after, you probably believe that this is referring to the great tribulation that's going to come on the world eventually after the rapture. If you believe Revelation was written in the 60s a little earlier, perhaps this is referring to what happened to Jerusalem in the year AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Truly, none of us know exactly what this refers to. But the truth is that we can take with us today that there are promises attached to obedience. I'll say it again. There's promises attached to obedience. You want God to do some work in your life, be obedient to him. Do what he wants you to do. And he gives him another promise in verse 11. He said, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Church, we are implored today by this model church, given this letter by Jesus Christ. He said, hold on to what you've got. Has God worked in anybody's life this morning? Has God done anything in your life? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed of it. God has done something in my life. God has worked a miracle in my life. Understand something today. The world's going to try to take that from you. Satan's going to try to take that from you. He may not be able to do it, but he's going to try. He's gonna try to drag you down. He's gonna try to tempt you. He's gonna try to divert your attention. He's gonna try to distract you. He's gonna try to get you so busy and so worried and so anxious that you forget about it. He's gonna try to get your mind off of what God has done and off of what God is doing. The world is gonna do everything it can do to take what God has done in your life and divert your attention away from it and separate you from that to the point where you look around and go, man, I don't even remember what it felt like when God came into my life i don't even remember what it was like when god transformed me church hold on to what we've got we have to endure patiently and enduring patiently means that we have to constantly remind ourselves where we came from because church it gets real easy to make it about me and what i want and how i feel and what i wish god would do for me but god has to often remind me boy you remember where you were when i found you You remember what kind of mess you were when you were 20 years old, the stuff that you were involved in, the thoughts and the plans that you had. Thank God he came into my life and transformed me. And when I feel like quitting in 2021, sometimes i got to remember what he did back in 2007. And i got to go back to that place because i got to hold on to what I've got. He said, you hold on so that nobody will take your crown. Church, we can't lose our salvation, but we can sure lose our crown. Maybe you say, what's that mean? I don't think it gets taught often enough in the church. But the Bible speaks over and over about this idea that when we do get to heaven one day, there are specific rewards for specific acts of faithfulness for Christians. There was an old gospel song written years ago. I don't remember the title of it. Some of you all will remember this if you like old gospel music. It was something, it said something like, Don't don't put me in a mansion. Just give me a cabin in the corner of glory somewhere It was this idea That I don't need to be a somebody in the kingdom I don't need to be somebody who does mighty works in the kingdom of god I just want to sneak into heaven by the skin of my teeth and not attract much attention I just need to get in while the getting's good Not miss the boat before the door gets shut I just want to sneak into heaven and hope that it was good enough for god And you ain't got to give me any crowns or any rewards. Just put me in a cabin somewhere in the corner of glory. And I think I understood what the writer of that song meant by that. But the truth is, when we stand before Jesus one day, we have to understand the order of things. When you and I pass away from this earth, the very next thing that happens is that our spirit will go to heaven to be judged by God Almighty. We're all going to stand before God And the first question that's going to be asked, and I don't know exactly how this looks or how this sounds, but I know this. Based on what we learn in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus sort of spells this out for us. We are going to each be expected to give an account for our life. I'm not going to give an account for my wife's life. She is. And I'm going to give an account for my life. And I'm not going to be able to speak on behalf of you. You're going to have to do that. And we're going to stand before God. And God's going to sort of... Take inventory of our life. Now, here's the good news. The good news is this. No matter how bad it's been, if you've got Jesus, you're in. No matter how bad it's been, if you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior... And you have followed Jesus, you are in. You are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's called the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. And there are many people, just like the thief on the cross the day Jesus died, he was dying as a criminal, and yet in his dying moments, he confessed Christ as his Savior. And Jesus said, surely today you'll be with me in paradise. Good news for bad people. Amen? Good news. You're saved. You're in. But here's the truth about it. We learn from Jesus that there are going to be some people who are going to get in by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. God's going to look at us and go, boy, you made it, but it was close. While others of us, and I don't fancy myself to be included in this group. I'm not the one who gets to decide this. I merely get to read the Word and tell you what it says. That's my job. But what we learn is that there are at least five crowns that are going to be available for Christians who are uniquely obedient. The one that it's speaking about here is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 in relation to the church at Smyrna. The church in Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia were both spoken of receiving what is called the victor's crown. And this crown is given to the Christians who are persecuted and yet they never deny their faith. There may be coming a day, church, where being a Christian We can raise our hands today and say, I'm a Christian, and it's all good. Everybody agrees with you. Everybody claps and celebrates. We say, man, it's great that you're a Christian. But church, there may come a day when somebody says, hey, you need to either deny Jesus Christ or it's about to cost you something. And church, there have been many people throughout history who, when faced with that choice, they folded. You say, well, do you lose your salvation when you fold? I don't get to decide who's saved and who isn't. But I do believe the mark of a true believer is that whenever going gets tough, we don't quit. I believe that's a mark of a true believer. And there are Christians all throughout history, including. An early church, what we call early church father in the first century who came through the church of Smyrna and came through the church of Philadelphia. His name was Polycarp, and he was given the opportunity to deny his faith or be burned at the stake. They literally tied him to a pole and burned him to death. And they said, listen, all you got to do is deny Jesus, and we will put the fire out, and you can go home and have dinner with your family. And he burned to death right there, and he said, I will never deny Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And when he got into heaven, there was a standing ovation for him. Biggest church, God loves us all, and he saves any of us who will come to him. But when there is a unique sense of obedience and faithfulness in the life of a Christian, that's something God recognizes. You say, why do you think God tells us that? Why, why, why wouldn't God want it to all be equal for everybody? Two reasons. Number one, when you dedicate your life to serving Jesus, and I know my time's almost up. I'm, I'm, I'm just about done, but I want to hit this before we get done. When you give your life to serving Jesus, and I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're not a Christian, and this is new. Maybe you're a Christian, and you're sort of involved, and you sort of attend the church, but you're not really just super plugged in. And maybe there's some of us here today that, man, every waking minute of your life, you're pouring out to the church and to the gospel. And you're busy and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're stressed out and you go to bed tired and you wake up tired and you think, man, I don't know if I can keep doing this like I'm doing it. Miss Robin, I bet you felt that way being a pastor's wife for 30-something years. I bet there's been days that you and Brian have thought, I don't know if I've got the energy to go on. And this is something I've had to remind my wife. Man, when it gets hard to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to remember God sees you. God knows what you're giving up. God knows what you're doing, and everything we do in secret that nobody else sees and nobody else appreciates and nobody gives you a hand clap about and nobody tells you that you're great because you do it, and you're wore out and you're wrung out and you're exhausted, and you go, God, why is it that you've got me doing all this stuff when it seems like many Christians just live their own life and have all this time and get to enjoy things, and I just feel like I'm wrung out for the sake of the church. Does anybody even notice? God responds. He notices. He notices. And there's crowns waiting on the other side. There's crowns waiting on the other side. And, church, the day's gonna come that if you're faithful and you're obedient, God's gonna say, Jimmy, that thing that nobody else saw that you did for me, I saw it. Here's a crown. Here's the really good news. Reason number two, I think God does this after the judgment of the world is over this is called the great white throne judgment when every soul that's ever lived has to take an account for their life in front of God it's a fearsome time when this is over there's going to be a celebration for those of us who are in the kingdom of God for the Christians and we're going to all celebrate and we're going to worship Jesus and here's the really cool thing that I can't wait for this is what gets me out of bed in the morning when there's ministry work to be done If God grants me to be able to earn a crown in heaven, at that big worship service that we all get to gather together with those who have gone before us, before the throne of Jesus, we get to take those crowns off and give them right back. We get to say, God, it ain't even about me, and it ain't about having a crown. Jesus, it's about you. In church... I don't want to be at that worship service in the back row with my arms folded looking at the people who were really faithful while I barely snuck in at the last second and think, man, if I had just walked through that open door when it was open, maybe I'd have a crown to give him. If I had just been faithful when the things got tough, if maybe I hadn't quit. When things got hard, maybe if I'd been willing to share my faith when it was scary, maybe if I'd been willing to be obedient when things got difficult, perhaps I'd have a crown to give him. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but church, if there's an opportunity to serve him in heaven, I want that opportunity. And I pray that you want that opportunity today. He tells us in verse 12, The one who's victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will they leave it. I'll write on in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Church, God is preparing a perfect place for his people. I don't know if you knew this, but heaven is not going to be our eternal home. I know we've been told that when you die, you go to heaven, and that's true. If you're a Christian, you die, you go to be to heaven. Your spirit is with Jesus, but church, there's a day coming when Jesus returns. He said that when he returns, the dead in Christ shall rise. The bodies are coming up out of the graves, and our spirits that are in heaven with Jesus are going to be reunited with our bodies, and our bodies are going to be made perfect. And it says... That there is what's called a new heaven and a new earth that's going to descend and replace this old one. So we are going to live forever with God, not in some spiritual existence in heaven, but we are going to live forever with God in a physical existence like this one, but perfectly. It's going to be perfect. And that's the place that God is preparing for us. And I want to invite you this morning. If this is new to you, or maybe you've heard it a thousand times, but you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you this morning to receive Christ as your Savior.